Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the, as of now, latest big universal blockbuster the mummy from 2017 starring tom cruise a film which has um an interesting reception we we'll just say that for now uh, we'll get into it in a little bit um in terms of the format we shall start with a look at the background information then a section on the historical accuracy and finally i shall review the film and then rate it out of 10 but before then Traditions are traditions, and we must set the scene. Right. You are in the middle of a battle in Iraq, fighting against terrorists as they try to take over a settlement. All seems lost when suddenly, against your orders, your corporal calls in an airstrike. When the dust settles, the terrorists have fled and in their place is a large hole in the ground, revealing an ancient Egyptian tomb. This tomb is many thousands of miles away from Egypt. Later, you head inside, and with the help of an archaeologist, find an ancient Egyptian coffin submerged in mercury. You lift it out, eager to learn more about it. However... Little do you realise that you have unleashed an ancient evil upon the earth. Soon, you will have to face the mummy. So the budget for this film was between 125 and 195 million dollars. 
And in total, it made $410 million at the box office. Though it is worth noting, when taking marketing into account as well, this meant that the film actually lost the studio between 60 and $100 million. Originally, the film was supposed to launch a new cinematic universe named The Dark Universe. This would have been made up of some of the classic horror villains, including the likes of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Invisible Man, and Jekyll and Hyde, who also appears in this film. There were even some big names attached to these films, with the likes of Johnny Depp as The Invisible Man, and Angelina Jolie in The Bride of Frankenstein remake. But due to both this film's critical and commercial reception, the entire Dark Universe was scrapped after just one film. In fact, this is also the lowest rated Tom Cruise film that's ever been made. Even before the film's release, there were signs that things might not be up to standard here, as the actual trailer was originally released with a lack of sound effects. I have seen a few people claim that this is just an urban legend, however, I personally can attest that it is not, as I saw this in the cinema myself. It is indeed a bizarre watch, and if you are interested in seeing it, it can easily be found on YouTube. I promise it is very entertaining and very funny, as it's basically just made up of sound effects of Tom Cruise grunting and screaming occasionally. <laughs> On the upside, this film did allow a couple of the actors to tick some goals off of their bucket lists. For a start, Russell Crowe had been friends with both Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman until their divorce in 2001. Since then, he had never gotten the chance to work with Tom Cruise, and so apparently he was very happy to get this opportunity here. Also, Jake Johnson, who's known for the show New Girl, had also wanted to work with Tom Cruise for quite some time and jumped at the opportunity. In fact, apparently, Tom Cruise even allowed him to use his private facilities so that he could rigorously train for the part for about four and a half months before filming started. In terms of the cast, we have Tom Cruise, who plays Nick Morton, a US Army sergeant and also a tomb looter, even though in the film at times he claims not to be, uh, Jake Johnson, who plays Sergeant Vale, Russell Crowe, who plays the parts of both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Annabelle Wallace, who plays Jenny, the archaeologist and love interest of Nick Morton, Tom Cruise's character, and Sophia Boutella, who plays the mummy, Armanette. Okay, so we've now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here, I shall simply go over the film, saying what it gets right and wrong in terms of history, archaeology, that kind of thing. The film opens with a quote that reads thus, Death is but the doorway to new life. We live today, we shall live again in many forms, shall we return. The film then claims that this is an Egyptian prayer of resurrection. If this is indeed an ancient Egyptian prayer, it has been heavily modified to the point where it is not saying what it was originally intended to. Similar-ish quotes can be found in the Book of Going Forth by Day, otherwise known more famously as the Book of the Dead, 
However, these are not about resurrection of the dead in, in this life. They are instead about the resurrection of the dead in the next life. The Book of the Dead is more a guide for the deceased, which will allow them to traverse the afterlife, meet the god Osiris, and hopefully end up in the Field of Reeds, which is kind of like the ancient Egyptian version of heaven. It is most certainly not, however, a book which allows people to resurrect the dead in this life as these films very often portray it as. Shockingly, this is just films using artistic license, essentially. However, in this quote where it says, we live again in many forms, I suppose this could be likened to the Egyptian soul, as this was made up of many different parts. You had the bar, which was often represented as a bar bird. This was essentially the individual's personality and their uniqueness. And after death, it could actually leave the body and even the tomb as well. Among other things, it was this part of the soul that travelled with Ra, the sun god, as he traverses the underworld and fights the very evil serpent of chaos, Apep. Then you had the car, which was the essence of the individual. Once again, this could be represented as a bird known as a car bird. And this part of the soul stayed within the body and the tomb and could also live inside of statues and likenesses of the deceased. As it could live inside of statues and likenesses, this also allowed a link between this life and the next, as it allowed for descendants and family members and priests, that kind of thing, to give offerings to the deceased through these statues. As such, the car was essential for sustaining the deceased in the afterlife. Then you had the ak, which was the part of the soul that moved into the field of reeds. You also had the kahet, which was the physical body. All of these parts, as well as other parts of the soul as well, were able to do different things at different times, and so it could be argued that this is what this quote is talking about. Though in reality, I feel that this is me being very kind to this film, and the chances are it's just a bit of a coincidence. It is, after all, quite clear that I'm reading a little bit too much into this here. <laughs> Later on, it is claimed that the Second Crusade against Jerusalem led to Egypt being brought into the conflict in 1153 AD. It is then claimed that the Crusaders brought back a ruby, which legend had it, when attached to a blade, made up the dagger of the god Set. First things first, Egypt was indeed involved in the Second Crusade, so this at least is accurate. However, this dagger is supposed to come from the New Kingdom. Rubies did not really arrive in Egypt until well into the Roman period, so this is untrue. There was also no such thing as the Dagger of Set, that's just made up for this film as well. When it comes to the mummy, she is named Armanet. I have seen a couple of people liken this to the name of the goddess Amanet. Personally, I feel that this is not just possible, I, I think it's probable, I think this was intentional. After all, it would not be out of place for a mummy movie to take inspiration from real Egyptian names. Amonet was the female counterpart of the god Amon, and also one of his consorts. She first appeared in the pyramid text from the Old Kingdom during the 5th dynasty, around about the same time as Amon, in fact. 
Interestingly, although Amonet is first mentioned in the Old Kingdom, it is not until the reign of the female pharaoh Hatshepsut, some 900 years later, that we get her first iconography. And in fact, Hatshepsut did far more than any other ruler to develop Amonet's cult. As the Spice Girls would say, girl power. Interestingly, although Hatshepsut often depicted herself as male in iconography, as a way of kind of legitimising her reign, in textual evidence, she normally marks herself as female. During her reign, she used Amonet rather than her more prominent male counterpart, Amon, in order to legitimise her position. Interestingly, several people, including the well-known Egyptologist Campbell Price, whose article on this I have linked in the biography below, point out the similarities between Queen Hatshepsut and the story of the mummy here, Armanet. After all, both she and Hatshepsut were ambitious women who were displaced as successor to the throne by a male heir. Both then seized power for themselves, and further, both had their names stricken from the records later on. Though, conversely, Armanet never becomes a ruler, and is betrayed as ruthless and bloodthirsty towards a child who is going to take the throne from her, even going as far as to kill him. Hatshepsut never went this far, and instead, for a large part of her reign, was technically a co-regent to her son, Thutmose III, as he was only two when he came to the throne. It was only in around about year seven of his reign that Hatshepsut started to be seen as a pharaoh and slowly gained more control as her reign went on. Further, whilst Thutmose III did try and strike her from the records after her death, he did so by erasing her name from inscriptions and things like that. Armanet, the mummy in the film on the other hand, was physically taken out of Egypt and buried in a foreign land, thousands of miles away in Mesopotamia, so modern-day Iraq. So is Armanet based on Hatshepsut? Is there any inspiration here whatsoever? Possibly, if I'm honest, I'm not 100% sure. However, it is worth noting that if Hatshepsut truly was an inspiration for the character of Armanet, basing her name on Amonet is a nice touch, as she was a goddess who Hatshepsut revered and developed. During the film, Armanet makes a pact with the god Set. When she makes this pact, her face gets covered by strange lettering. The lettering on her face and body is not actually saying anything, but it looks like it may have been inspired by hieratic writing, albeit only vaguely. So, hieratic is basically the ancient Egyptian language, but in shorthand. Where hieroglyphs tended to be used for inscriptions and engravings, Hieratic was more used for legal documents and things like that. Interestingly, it seems that both hieroglyphs and hieratic appeared at about the same time, around about 3200 BC-ish. As for the god Set, the film constantly calls him the god of death. Technically, Set is the god of the desert, storms, violence, disorder and foreigners, though admittedly many of these things were considered dangerous by the Egyptians. Later still, it is claimed that Set is known by many other names, and that one of these is Satan. 
Now, obviously, they're claiming that Set is the same as the biblical devil. But in all honesty, while Satan is seen as a being of evil, it is fair to say that for the majority of Egyptian history, Set was far more complicated than that. It is true that he played the antagonist in many Egyptian stories, most noticeably the Osiris myth where he kills his brother Osiris, and the contendings of Set and Horus where he battles his nephew Horus for the throne. But he also had positive attributes. For instance, he was one of the gods who protected Ra, the sun god, from the terrible serpent of chaos, a pep in the afterlife. And in fact, he even had a cult of very high esteem at Ombos Nakada in the northeast of the country in the Delta. It was only really later, during the Roman period, that Set became demonised to the level he is often portrayed as today. Moving on, in the modern day when they find the tomb of Armanet, they find her submerged in mercury. Jenny, the archaeologist, then claims that the ancient Egyptians believed that mercury weakened an evil spirit. This is not true at all. Egyptians never had such a belief, and in fact, Mercury was not common at all in ancient Egypt. However, it is possible that cinnabar mercury was used for its red pigment. Later on in the tomb, Jenny points out that there is no canopic equipment in the tomb and no shabdis, so essentially servant figures that were there to serve the deceased in the afterlife. She then claims that because of this, the mummy must have suffered a fate worse than death. This is just a little bit of a leap. For a start, not every burial in ancient Egypt had these things. There were different levels of burial. And then there was just a chance that some of these things may not have survived. We are talking about thousands of years here after all. Also, bear in mind that they found this tomb in Iraq, not Egypt. At best, they would only know that the tomb is inspired by ancient Egypt they would have no way of knowing at this point in the excavation whether it was a true Egyptian tomb or not. So they may even be basing this assumption on the wrong culture entirely. When it comes to the actual coffin of Arbonet, unsurprisingly, it has been highly Hollywoodized. It barely resembles an ancient Egyptian coffin at all. Although, interestingly, in some scenes you can see the hieroglyphs on the inside, and they do seem to be real. I haven't translated any sentences as the only time I was able to see the hieroglyphs clearly, the coffin was half full of water, which blocked out half of them. But I can see the word for sat, which would mean daughter, iset, which would mean place, seat or throne, were, meaning great, elder or important, and wenen, which means to exist. These can be seen in around about the 36 minutes and 50 seconds mark in the film. Anyway, back to the tomb. Jenny also doesn't actually do any archaeology. She just walks around the tomb, vaguely taking voice recordings of her observations, and then they take the coffin and leave. Archaeology is not about finding pretty objects. It is about accurately recording and documenting the past. What we have here is more akin to tomb robbery. Also, I find it quite funny that later on, Jenny gets annoyed at some soldiers as they push the coffin too roughly along the ground. 
but she is fine with the coffin being attached to a helicopter and swinging wildly back and forth through the air as it flies away. Apparently, that's absolutely fine. At this point, she also claims that the mummy is 5,000 years old, and then says that the hieroglyphs are definitely New Kingdom. The New Kingdom comes from about 3,500 years ago, not five. Further, the hieroglyphs here look to me to be more Middle Egyptian from the Middle Kingdom. However, it is fair to say that Middle Egyptian was also used in the New Kingdom. Basically, when it comes to hieroglyphs, you get Old Egyptian, which comes from the Old Kingdom, or technically just before then, but we won't overcomplicate this. Middle Egyptian, which came from the Middle Kingdom. And then you have Late Egyptian, which came from the New Kingdom. Basically, as language slowly evolved over time, the writing system was also slowly adapted. However, Middle Egyptian is also what is known as Classical Egyptian, and it carried on being used throughout Egyptian history, mostly in a religious and funerary context. In a way, I suppose, this is a little similar to the way the Catholic Church still uses Latin. Not exactly the same, as Middle Egyptian remained far more prevalent, but there are similarities there. When an Egyptologist is learning Ancient Egyptian, it is usual for them to learn Middle Egyptian first, and then to either branch off into Old or Late Egyptian when they have grasped it. On the upside, it does seem like the film does a passable job when it comes to the spoken Egyptian language. I will say first and foremost that I have never studied Late Egyptian, but it does sound like they may be either speaking that, or possibly the direct descendant of Ancient Egyptian, Coptic, as I was able to understand one or two words. For instance, when Armanet sucks the life out of people, she then says the word Weben, and the bodies come back to life. Weben is the ancient Egyptian word meaning to rise. They also say Setep Ai at certain points, and claims that this means my chosen. In Middle Egyptian, I would imagine this sentence would have been said in what is known as a Sejem Nf formula, which is basically the perfect tense. As such, it would have been setep ne. So setep means chosen, n means of, and e means either I or my. So this could have either meant I have chosen or my chosen. Therefore, although this film is largely incorrect, and makes many baseless claims, such as Mercury being used to weaken evil spirits, and that the mummy is both from the New Kingdom and also somehow from 500 years ago, it does feel as if there is some basis in history here. It is clear that an Egyptologist did help with the creation of the film, and this is especially apparent when it comes to the language used. Though it is also noticeable that the said Egyptologist is not credited. I can sort of understand why, to be honest, as the history presented here is not particularly great, but I feel it is also fair that this would not have been the Egyptologist's fault. There is enough here to prove they knew what they were doing, after all, and I do wonder if the filmmakers just took one or maybe even twenty too many liberties creatively, which the Egyptologist was not happy with. Maybe they just did not want their name associated with this film. Of course, this is 
all just speculation, but it is my theory. Anyway, that brings an end to the historical accuracy section of this episode. Let us move on to the review. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here I shall simply talk about what I liked in the film, what I disliked, and then rate it out of 10. First things first, I liked that the mummy was female here. This did help to differentiate it from recent-ish blockbuster mummy movies. Plus, as I spoke about a couple of episodes ago, it did give it a link to those very early mummy movies where the mummy was usually a woman and highly romanticised. To hear more on this, listen to my episode on the silent era of film. I am uncertain if this was intentional, but it did feel like a little nod to those early tales, and I'm all for that, I just think that's really cool. I also like that the mummy in this one was able to suck the life out of her victims and bring them back to life. This is a bit of a modern trope, and some may view it as a cliché, I suppose, but it's one I quite enjoy. Given that the film goes for a more action-adventure vibe, it is just an effective way of having hordes of enemies for our heroes to take on, and again, I'm all for that. It's fun. Further, there are a few little Easter eggs sprinkled throughout that made me smile, and most of these can be seen in the office of Dr. Jekyll, about halfway through the film. For instance, in one of the jars in his lab, you see the claw from the creature of the Black Lagoon. In another instance, you see the book of Eamon Ra from The Mummy 1999. This is quite cool and a nice reminder of Universal's rich history when it comes to horror. However, as a whole, the Jekyll and Hyde scene is a bit of a mess and really throws off the pacing of the film. So, for those who are unaware, Russell Crowe plays Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in this film. There is a whole part in the middle where his men capture the mummy. It is clear that this is here to set up later films in the now-scrapped franchise. In general, although I have my issues with the first half of the film, I felt the film really went downhill from the Jekyll and Hyde scene onwards, and it never recaptured its momentum. As a whole as well, the film really does not have a very good script, and as such, the humour sprinkled throughout rarely lands, and none of the characters have very good chemistry. The entire script is also incredibly cliched. For instance, when they are in the tomb at the beginning, Jenny notices that there are chains holding the coffee down in the mercury. This leads to her saying that the chains are not there to rise the mummy up. They are there to keep it down. This is not a tomb, it's a prison. Ish. In fact, there are large parts of this script that I felt I could quote before I had even heard it. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise's character, Nick, is supposed to come across as a bit of a cheeky and funny character. But he literally just comes across as a bit of an asshole, to be honest, and it really doesn't help that he's literally a looter. Why on earth would I be rooting for this man? The characters in general are highly undeveloped, and as such, by the end of the film, when we have the epic final fight, I have lost all interest. I did not care if the mummy won or took over the world. I did not care if Nick Morton lived or died. I just kind of wanted the film to be over so that I could just get on with my day, and in a way that's sort of the 
biggest crime a film can commit. In terms of the reviews, unsurprisingly, I suppose, considering this film destroyed an entire franchise before it even probably started, they weren't great. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a score of 15%, and on IMDb, it has a 5.4 out of 10. In general here, it is negatively compared to the Brendan Fraser mummy movies, which are seen as more light-hearted, genuinely funny, and fun. Conversely, The Mummy 2017 is seen as too dark and trying and failing to capture the same humour. Generally, it is seen as being stuck between genres, not knowing what it wants to be with a terrible script and characters. There were, in fairness, some, however, who felt that people were being too harsh on this film. Most of these reviews admit that the film was overhyped and not necessarily great, but they also felt that the film was a fun watch. For myself, I am happy for anyone who likes this film. It is after all better to like something than to hate it, and entertainment is subjective. However, I personally do lean on the more negative side. For me, this film committed the biggest crime of all. I reached the end of the film, and I just did not care anymore. I am giving this film a 3 out of 10. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, why not like the episode, subscribe to the podcast, make posters for it and spread them over your neighbourhood. If you're a Prime Minister or a President watching, why not mention this podcast in one of your speeches? And please join me next time where we shall be looking at the remake of one of the films that I surprisingly weirdly liked. The Disney film Under Wraps from 2021. Will this one be as good as the charming 1997 original? Or will it be a bland cash grab? We shall find out. I hope you all have a really good week and see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.